What's up, Warriors? Welcome to the first edition of Warrior Wisdom. You know, Warrior Wednesdays are great. I love Warrior Wednesdays, and I bring it to the Christian protector, uh, you guys and gals that are at your church, making sure there's a safe and secure worship environment for everybody that shows up on your campus. But I wanted to expand that just a little bit. I wanted to go outside of that because we all are warriors. As Christians, we are warriors. How do I know that? Well, it says early on in Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name. And aren't we created in his image? It also says that in the book that I like to read. I hope you all like to read that as well. Uh, so make sure you drop it into the comment section right there, where you're listening from, who you are, what church you represent, or where you're representing uh, from tonight. We are going to get into this pretty quick, but let's align ourselves on what we believe here at Protector's Toolkit. And that is Proverbs 18:15. This is our guiding biblical principle. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And everything that I've done in my life, I like to impart knowledge and give knowledge as much as I like to receive knowledge. And that's what we're all about here at Protector's Toolkit. Now, if you have some sheriff's deputies that are in your life, you may direct them to the easy to read version of the Bible like I do. And it says it this way, wise people want to learn more, so they listen closely to gain knowledge. Now, you know I'm just joking about sheriff's deputies. They don't read. That's just a joke, sheriff's deputies. If you want to type in, go ahead in the comment section. So I want to break into this really quickly here because I've got my friend Tim Barton, the president of Wall Builders, here on Warrior Wisdom tonight. Now, listen, it, 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 this is going to be a presentation. You're going to want to hit that share button really quickly down at the bottom. Share it with everybody on your friends list right now because this message tonight is so impactful with where we are as a country and not only where we are currently, but where we've come from as a country where we are currently and what we need to do to coalesce or kind of come together once again as Christians and as warriors to really have the voice that we should be having. Tim is going to talk tonight about all of that, how we connect to the present uh, with America's past, what steps Christians should be taking for the future. So without further ado, Tim, I'm going to turn it over to you, buddy. You're the, you're the superstar here tonight. Well, I, I really appreciate it, and thanks for having me on. Uh, for those that don't know, I work for an organization called Wall Builders. We do a lot with American history, and so that's part of what I'm going to dive into tonight. In fact, I'm, I'm sitting in a room behind me um, are some artifacts from American history. Among those, uh, over my shoulder, uh, hanging up as a flag from D-Day. It was on the third ship across. Uh, we have more than 100,000 original documents from early American history, almost all of them from before 1812. So a lot of what I'm going to show gets into that. And actually to do that, there's a presentation I want to share with you guys. So I'm going to pull it up real quick um, as we get going. And in the midst of this, we recognize that we live now in a nation that is as divided as we have seen, maybe ever, certainly at least since the Civil War. Uh, with the, the division, obviously there's racial, but there's there's tension both on a religious liberty front, um, certainly looking at the political division. When you go back to the Civil War, it's interesting seeing what the Civil War was coming out of and, and what some of their arguments and debates were that even led to the Civil War. Because what what's fascinating to consider is that the Civil War was almost an outflow from the Second Great Awakening. Why do I say that? Because during the Second Great Awakening, the, the people who were leading the abolition movement were actually Christians. Charles Finney, who is known as the leader of the Second Great Awakening, he's a guy who's the kind of founder of Oberlin College. Well, while he was the president of Oberlin College, he actually not only had Oberlin College as a stop on the Underground Railroad, he was encouraging his students to go to the South and rescue black people and do what they could to, to fight for the freedom of the slave. And, and I point all this out. Because Charles Finney is known as a leader in the Second Great Awakening. And we so often look at, at revivals and awakenings, and we think of them as times of, of peace and unity. And wouldn't it be great if we could all just get along? That's not historically how revivals normally worked. And if you look back at, at the Second Great Awakening, some of the biggest tensions going on between the abolitionists and those who were pro-slavery. And what's crazy is the biggest debates, even about abolition or being pro-slavery, were happening inside of the church. And here's one of the things that we don't often think about historically is that the Great Awakening, even though it had a national impact, right? The first, Second Great Awakening changed the entire nation. Those actually were not revivals in the sense of all of the lost coming and getting saved. It actually was an internal revival, largely speaking, inside of the church. Now, once the church got itself right, there was a lot of ripple effects that touched and reached the rest of the nation. But in the midst of it, in the Second Great Awakening, you had a lot of church splitting over the issue of slavery because there was this political and, and really more accurately, 
there is a theological difference. And when the, the theological status quo was being challenged, there were people who were frustrated and they left. And this is one of the things that's interesting. In 1 Peter 4, 17, it says, A time has come that judgment must begin in the house of God. Peter acknowledged that the place where judgment begins is in the house of God. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because if you look at the division we are experiencing in the nation today, the times our nation was the most divided actually were times where God was stirring up and awakening people inside of the church. I would argue that if you look around the nation today, I think it's exactly what God is doing because you have people now more than ever that are recognizing we need to fight to defend religious liberty. And and, and you can go down a list of things all of a sudden that now are important, that, that churches are now recognizing they in fact are essential, that gender actually is now becoming I can't believe we're having a debate about gender, but gender is becoming something that Christians are going, wait a second, God made them male and female. And no, boys shouldn't be going into girls' locker rooms. These are debates not just happening culturally and politically. They're happening inside the church. And Peter said it starts first with the house of God, and then it moves out from that. This is one of the things I think we can point to in America today. There is an awakening happening inside of the church where pastors who are recognizing the role of the church is essential, they are standing up. This is what we would call a revival. And if we're maybe saying we are in a revival, what does that mean for us and what should we look for now? I've just kind of mentioned the fact I think we probably are in an awakening based, again, historically, go back to the first great awakening. The first great awakening happened 30, 40, 50 years. It actually leads arguably to the American Revolution. The great awakening, second great awakening, last 60 or 70 years. It leads to the civil war. Awakenings caused a lot of strife and division in the nation, but it caused it on a lot of moral issues of, of what should the church be doing and what is the biblical position? What's the moral position? And so in the midst of that, certainly we can look and go, okay, well, if one of one of the conditions of revival is is division or frustrations, check, we are there, but that's not really why we would say we're in the midst of a revival. There's something else we would point to. And so I want to go through and point out, when you look at the Bible, the Bible gives several examples where there were, in fact, revivals, at both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. You can point back to people like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Josiah from the Old Testament, where they find the scroll. They, they find God's law that had been lost and they go, wow, this is what we're supposed to be doing. I didn't even realize it. And, it. and it changes the trajectory of the nation as they say, we have to change what we do. We have to get back to being godly again. This is largely what happened in the Great Awakenings in America. If you look at the, the first Great Awakening, for example, uh, this is, oh, sorry, let me back up one time. Uh, the first Great Awakening in America, this is the, the challenge that happened is we have to get back to what the Bible says. Uh, there was a, a change in the 1660s in America um, where it was called the halfway covenant. And essentially churches said, we don't have enough people in our churches. So let's not really require like salvation to be something people need to be a member of our church. You can come be a member without having a life-changing experience with Jesus. If maybe you were baptized at some point, that's all that really matters. First great awakening says, wait a second, let, let's read what the Bible says. And let's get back to what the Bible says. The great awakening starts in early 1700s, but it happened because pastors started seeing what was being accepted in the churches and they were saying, this is not biblical. That's actually part of what we are seeing happen in the nation today. And, and I would point to six things that I think are, are true historically from revivals that I think also you can look and see what's happening in America. And again, historically revivals were not times of peace and merriment and kumbaya around the fire. It was actually a time where there was a lot of internal strife, but God was awakening people inside the church to spiritual truth and giving them the courage and boldness to stand for that truth. So let me walk through these six things uh, for these next several minutes. So the overall perspective, I would say, and, and this is kind of the first big deal, is when you look at America today, one of the challenges we have is Americans are not, and really forget Americans, Christians are not thinking right in two areas. And this, again, this is part of like number one big picture issues we're seeing. We're not thinking right. And here's the two issues we're thinking wrong. We are obsessed with a national focus. So, for example, we're seeing even some of these police shootings happening around the nation. We're going, oh, my gosh, in Minneapolis and Ohio. And we're seeing things all over the nation. Or we're seeing what's happened with the border. Right. I'm a Texan. And of course, what's happening with all these illegal immigrants coming across the border and and obviously in New Mexico and Arizona and California. And we're seeing so much with the border, but obviously Washington, D.C. And, and we're spending more money we've ever spent. There's so much national focus that as you listen to the news and maybe you don't. And that's awesome. But if you pay attention, what you see from this national focus is that as you look at the Capitol or the White House or the Supreme Court, they are making decisions that we cannot impact 
And it, it seems overwhelming at times. And when something is overwhelming, what it happens is the effect or the impact it has on us is it often paralyzes us because there's nothing I can do. This is too big. I, I, I just I don't even want to deal with it anymore. There's a paralyzing effect that takes place when we're looking at something beyond our building capacity at times. And this is what happens with the national news. We see the national issues and it doesn't incite us to action. It actually paralyzes us in many regards. This is different if you go back historically. Look at the American Revolution. When the American Revolution unfolds, you have several major battles at the beginning. Uh, you had the battle number one at Lexington Green. Sorry, let me back up. The battle of Lexington Green, the battle of Concord Bridge, the battle on the road to Boston, and then you had the battle of Bunker Hill. Significantly, the first four major battles of the American Revolution, none of them involved our Commander-in-Chief, George Washington. The reason this is significant is because nobody said, we need to call and get federal help. These were local battles and local churches said, we're going to take care of our area. So if you go back, for example, and you look at the shot heard around the world, Lexington Green, it actually was Jonas Clark who led his men and, and, and really one of the elders from the church was Captain Parker, who was in charge of the men that day. But 70 men go up against more than 700 British. Well, the pastor is the one who would encourage them, guys, we got to stand up and defend our town. The same thing, if you go over to the Battle of the Bridge of Concord, it was William Emerson who led 300 men from his church, and he encouraged them, go out, stand up. We're not going to let the British come and steal our stuff. We're going to stand our ground. We're going to be courageous. The same thing on the road back to Boston. You had pastors coming literally from all over in counties, and they were bringing men from their church with them in their congregations to come and oppose the British. As the British now have left Lexington and Concord, they're going back to Boston. It was churches that gave opposition on the road back to Boston. The same thing, if you look at the Battle of Bunker Hill, you you had, uh, I think it was Payson Phillips, the, the pastor there, who was leading men from his congregation out at the Battle of Bunker Hill. The point is, in the midst of this, it was local people and often local churches and congregations who were the ones standing up to do something. It was not a national problem that needed a national solution. It was people saying, we need to solve our local area. And so often we look at, at a national problem and we lose perspective that most national problems are national because there's so many local issues around the nation. But when you win the victory on the local level, you can win the national war. And this is what we saw even from back in the American Revolution. When they were winning the local battles, it led to them being able to win the war. And this is something that one of the things we have to change our perspective on is instead of looking at the national news, we as Christians ought to be going, okay, let me focus locally. Jesus told the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. It starts locally where you are. He told the disciples, start in Jerusalem and you work out from there. We have to change our focus instead of what is happening nationally to what's happening locally. In addition to that, if you look at national revivals, it doesn't change with what we what we are understanding like militarily, American Revolution started locally, expands nationally. Revivals are the exact same way. We think that because now we have social media, because we have TV, because things are happening around the nation, everybody's exposed to it, that we can have a national revival that is really only centered locally one place and touches everywhere. Nope. A national revival historically was not something that happened in every city in the nation. It was a single revival that happened in a local area. It's just there were enough single local area revivals that impacted the whole nation. Let me give you the example. From the First Great Awakening, George Whitfield is the major leader from the First Great Awakening. Now, he preached for 34 years, and some of that was in America, some of that was in England. During those 40 or 34 years, he had more than 18,000 sermons he preached in America. He had seven missionary journeys in America where he went up and down the coast. But not only was he preaching 18,000 sermons in America, it's estimated in those 34 years, he also preached 16,000 sermons over in Europe, which means he was averaging approximately 1,000 sermons a year, which is roughly three sermons a day. The dude literally preached himself to death. I'll come back and talk more about him later. But when you look at George Whitfield, 80% of Americans physically heard him preach. Now, back then, there's no internet, right? There's no YouTube. There's no TV. There's no phone. There's no social media. He traveled to that many towns that it's estimated 80% of Americans physically heard him speak. And there were times it was reported he would have up to 30,000 people out in a field listening to him. And there's a lot of cool connections as well. The founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin became friends with George Whitfield and Franklin was a kind of scientific minded guy. And he was so impressed with Whitfield. He said, this guy's voice is so powerful. 
from the science perspective, Benjamin Franklin said, I wonder how far his voice would carry. So Franklin presumably gets to the front where Whitfield's preaching, but he begins stepping off because he wants to see how far Whitfield's voice can be heard. Franklin said he went nearly a mile, and at a mile, he was still hearing Whitfield's voice preach. So that's how you preach to 30,000 people out in an open field with no microphone. Whitfield, absolutely amazing what he did. In the midst of everything he did, he wasn't the only guy from the First Great Awakening. You have the Reverend Samuel Cooper. You have the Reverend Gilbert Tennant. You have the Reverend Samuel Davies. Here's where it's different with these guys. And by the way, Jonathan Edwards, there's other guys a part of the First Great Awakening that were very important. But these guys all had local congregations. They were very important in their community and sometimes in the surrounding communities. But even though they're considered leaders in the First Great Awakening, they never largely left their local area. Whitfield's the only guy that went up and down the nation. The First Great Awakening was not a national revival. It was pastors causing local revivals where they were. And as more and more communities changed, then the nation changed. The First Great Awakening was not a national revival. It was hundreds of local revivals that changed the nation. And this is part of the idea that when we look at the national focus, we lose perspective that most of the problems we are going to solve, we solve locally. And let's also point out, if we look at the nation as a whole and understand there's so many national problems, well, there are churches in every community. If every church just solved the problems from their community, all of a sudden we've solved the nation's problems. That's the idea from even back in the first and second great awakening. It was revivals happening locally where local churches were having an infilling of God and saying, we're going to do something different. We're, we're going to believe different. We're going to stand up. We're going to be courageous. And they changed their community. And that led to a national revival. Now, again, where Christians have thought wrong on this issue is we're obsessed with national focus, national politics, national solutions. It's not the way you change a nation. You change it locally. Similarly, the second area we're thinking wrong is a lot of times we think that bigger is better. And this has certainly infiltrated the area of the church that inside the church, we have this notion that, well, uh, we need more people. And by the way, it's not just the church. You can look at businesses. You can look inside of schools, school districts. You can look inside of government areas, but church, okay? Th- this is kind of the American mindset. The bigger is better. And bigger can be better, but it depends on what kind of bigger we're talking about and, and what kind of better we're talking about. So let me just point out where this has impacted Christians and specifically the church. If you look at America as a whole, there are approximately 384,000 senior pastors and churches in America. Uh, we have a very good friend here at Walbothers. His name is George Barna. He's a national pollster, does a lot of polling inside the Christian community in America. And he does a lot of work with pastors as well. During one of his surveys, he called thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of pastors. He called up to 500 pastors a day. And he asked them some basic theological questions from the Bible to see if they believed that scripture was accurate and reliable and, and, and is trustworthy. What he discovered is that nearly 72% of pastors did not agree that the Bible was trustworthy, accurate, reliable. Only 107,000 pastors agreed with the accuracy, reliability, authority of scripture because others thought, well, maybe it's wrong in these areas or this doesn't really apply or these authors messed up, right? Whatever it is, they didn't believe that the the inspired word of God was actually the inspired word of God. So of the 107,000 pastors who at this point, they would be considered theologically conservative because they believe the Bible. So therefore they're conservative and want to conserve that truth. But of the 107,000 pastors, he asked them, how do you know if you've been successful? And these pastors gave him the idea of what they look for to measure success. And here were the top five answers he got for from pastors who say they believe the Bible. Number one is how many people attend their church. Number two is the size of their offerings. Number three is how big their church is. Number four is how many programs they're involved with. And number five is how many people they have on staff. Those are the five ways pastors were measuring if they were successful in the ministry or not. And I would point out, none of those measurements are based on Bible verses because those weren't things God said we should be measuring. But we have this notion that it's bigger is better. We need bigger, bigger churches, whatever else. That That's not just historically accurate. Let me point out, why, why would this maybe even be a problem for Christians? Because if you look at the number of attendees, when you have a massive congregation, right? If you're a mega church and, and the pastor says, guys, we need to get involved and help our community. If you are one of 60,000 people, do you feel personal responsibility or do you go, you know what? We should, and I hope somebody in here does it. What happens is, that when you have a larger group, 
it is easy to slough off responsibility. Same thing with crusades, right? You see these big crusade revivals and, and tens of thousands of people come and nothing really changes in those towns and communities and those nations. Why? Because nobody accepted personal responsibility to go and change and do something different with Jesus. Jesus even had the multitudes, but it was not the multitudes that changed and made a difference. It was of the 12 disciples, right? 11 of them were the ones who said, we're going to make a difference. Bigger is not always better, right? It wasn't the multitudes that changed the world under Jesus. It was the disciples and it was the people that Jesus poured into. And this is where sometimes even as Christians, we have to change our thinking. So this is where big picture perspective, right? We have to understand that when we focus locally, we have to have individual responsibility because we are the ones who are world changers. And let me give you a really interesting Christian perspective about how we should be world changers. If you look at global population today, there's approximately 7.9 billion people in the world. Uh, 32% identify as Christian, 21% identify as Muslim, 14% identify as Hindu, and 6% identify as Buddhist. Among that population, notice 32% identify as Christian, Okay. One of the things we know from modern culture is that a lot of Christians want to bring their friends to church so their pastor can lead their friends to Jesus. Now, that is us asking a professional to do the work of the ministry instead of us, right? I, I'm not leading my friend to Jesus. I want my pastor to do that. And so essentially pastors, right, ministers, evangelists, they do this. And for 2,000 years, we've had Christians in the world. Okay, that's when Jesus was here, 2,000 years ago. So for 2,000 years, we've had the church. In 2,000 years, we have achieved 32% of the entire world population. Now, that's not bad because that's that's the majority uh, that, that by plurality. That is the biggest number of any Christian, anything in the world or any religion in the world it is Christianity. With that being said, okay, notice what Jesus told the disciples they should do. Jesus taught this notion that each one should reach one, and he taught it in the Great Commission. Okay. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Now there's 7.9 billion people in the world. 32% are Christians. If every Christian said, I am going to go reach one lost person and I'm going to make them a disciple, right? I'm going to pour into them. I'm going to mentor them. I'm going to love on them and encourage them. If every one of us reached one after that first year, that 32% becomes 64%. If we then a second year said, all of us, let's go find somebody who's not saved. Let's reach them. Let's mentor them. Let's love on them. Let's train them. Literally in two years, we've reached the entire world. What has been the holdup then? Well, one of the things that's happened a lot in modern culture is, is we have neglected responsibility because there's been a crowd, right? Well, well we just bring it to church and my pastor do it. This is where we have to change our thinking. We have to act individually and think locally. So this is number one. One of the things that happens in revival is it changes people's perspective that they need to see things differently. They need to act differently. This is part of American revival, okay? So the six things, number one is we got to think differently. Number two, and by the way, that's individual and local action. Number two, I would point to is it's all about discipleship. And this is where if you go back to Matthew 28, when Jesus told the disciples that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. People today look at that and go, that's why we have to have missionaries, right? Evangelism, we're going to reach the lost. I am 100% in favor of reaching the lost, missionaries, and evangelism. But notice that the Great Commission was not a call to evangelism. The Great Commission says you teach them everything. Now, it says make disciples and teach them everything. That's called discipleship, right? That's, that's part of making disciples and you teach them everything. And teaching them everything, right, all the stuff we're dealing with today the Bible gives answers to it. And one of the things that's interesting about the rising generations is if you look at Gen Z, which is, is now the generation, they're in high school, they're young in college. Gen Z, over 50% say they believe they are religious people, but less than 15% of the next generation actually goes to church. They say they are open to faith, but they don't really like the church building. Now, we can debate and discuss, right, if that's a good or bad theological position, but the point is, you have people who are open to being discipled, but they, they're not looking to be discipled inside the church. Okay, well, so is that, is that bad on them or what should we do? Well, let me take you back to the Great Commission. What did Jesus say? He said, therefore, go. We have made it a focus to go and bring, right? Therefore, bring your friends to church. Jesus didn't say bring. He said, go. You go to where they are. Right. You go to, I mean, what did, Jesus do? what did Jesus do? Jesus went out to the Sea of Galilee, right? He found fishermen. Hey, you guys come with me. He went and found people to pour into and change their life. And this is the idea that 
so often we think of bring instead of go. And I'm not against bringing people to church, right? Don't misunderstand me, please. I want to bring people to church. I want my unsaved friends to have the hope of the gospel, to learn about Jesus and salvation and redemption and restoration and forgiveness. Yes, I want them to know all of that. But part of the challenge is that we need to learn to go to them instead of trying just to bring them to us or bring them inside the doors of the church. Okay, Jesus didn't say you go and bring, he said, you go, right? Not you bring, you go. And this is where we have to change part of that thinking. And this is part of even making disciples that Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. You go where they are and you start mentoring and training and pouring into them. And this is one of the things historically that it's super interesting looking at how discipleship happened in the first and second great awakening and some of those major national revivals. And there's been lots of revivals in American history, but you see people mentoring and pouring into those rising generations. Now, the third thing I would point to is in revivals, things are very practical. So much so that if you look at, at some of the topics being discussed and debated today, um, and, and not the least of which now might be critical race theory or gender studies or human sexuality, right? you can kind of pick topics. The reality is that I've showed a few things in the screen that I've seen in the news the last couple of years. The reality is the Bible deals with every one of these issues. And we actually have a really cool resource at Wall Builders called the Founders Bible that we go through and document a lot of the founders' writings on how they use the Bible to shape some of the public policy areas, how they were encouraged and inspired by the Bible. But the Bible deals with all these topics. And this is something that if, if we think practically, we should value the church as Christians. We should. But I, I think sometimes we have a, a misperception of even the notion of the church. Because if you look in the Bible— the word church is only used three times. What Jesus instead told his disciples much more about was the kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God. 141 times Jesus talked about the kingdom instead of the church. As good as a church is, we should be much more interested in building the kingdom than building the church. And this is part of revival is revival is not just about growing the church. It's about growing God's kingdom, building God's kingdom. How do we build God's kingdom? Through discipleship. And this is the challenge for us is that we need to go and disciple and discipleship is super practical because we're showing people how to live their life. So discipleship, it's practical. Number four is change occurs slowly. And as much as we would like there to be a uh, kind of Avengers scenario where there's this magic glove and we snap our fingers and things change, it's not really the way it works. Okay, the, the first great awakening, if you back up, this lasted for literally decades, arguably 40 years. And in the midst of the first great awakening, or by the way, second great awakening, which lasted arguably roughly 70 plus years. If you look at these, these span decades. And if you were in the middle of it, you might not even know you were in a revival. It was actually historians generally after the fact, looking back saying, man, look at that revival, turn of the century revivals. Again, going for decades, this was not a weekend service. This was the culture shifting and changing based on the church standing up for truth and making a difference in society. So if you look at revivals, things that you can see is, first of all, it does span decades. Most people didn't even know they were in a revival at the time. It was historians after the fact pointing back to it. And when historians pointed to it, the reason that it was revival is because they saw a reviving in the church or an awakening inside the church and said there was an awakening because look how the church was different after this period of decades. And this is one of the, again, the reason I would argue, I think we're in a third great awakening right now is because you are seeing pastors standing up with more courage and boldness, speaking out against government overreach, speaking in favor of, of second amendment, the right to life, religious liberty, male and female, basic gender, human sexuality. We are seeing pastors emboldened with courage to stand up in ways they've never stood out and spoken out in the last several decades. It's one of the reasons I think historically you might could argue we're in a revival, but not only that, Historically, revival is a process. It's not an event. It's, it's not a weekend service. It's not something that happens on the third Monday of, of the second month. Or No, no, no. Th this is a long process. It takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, but it does happen. Change occurs slowly. So if we're praying, God, revive America, God, help America, God, send revival. Many of us have prayed that prayer for literally decades, that God would move in America when God moves, it's not always a very quick process. It often takes literally decades, just historically. And this is why becoming transgenerational becomes important. Knowing it is a process 
part of the process means we have to reach the next generation. And, it, and it's interesting if you go back to biblical examples. In Judges 13, uh, the, the Israelites were being oppressed by the Philistines. And, and very common in the book of Judges, see it a lot in the Old Testament. When the Israelites rejected God's commands, uh, they would be conquered by a people. And they would then realize they had failed to live up to their part of the bargain with God. And so they would cry out to God and, and God would send them a deliverer. In Judges 13, it's that scenario where the Israelites are now enslaved and they cry out. And in and, and Judges 13, 5, it's interesting because an angel shows up and speaks to Manoah and his wife. And the angel says, God has heard the cry of the people for, for help, for a deliverer. And God is going to answer that prayer by giving you a child. Now think about that for a second. The Israelites are praying for deliverance. They're praying for revival. And God says, I'm going to send you a child. You have to wait for decades then for that child to grow up, to be the solution to the prayer you've been praying. This is exactly right. And historically, this happened quite often, that God would raise up a younger generation to be the solution to those problems. And if you look at where we are today, if you look at millennials or, or Gen Z, it's super interesting, just for example, on the pro-life issue. You know the most pro-life? generations in, in America are the millennial generation and, and Gen Z, how they're more pro-life than their parents are. Right. How are you more pro-life than your parents? In fact, the Bible says when a student is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. You shouldn't be more pro-life than the person that taught you or different than the person that taught you on some level. They are 30 to 40% more pro-life than any other generation in America since Roe versus Wade. How is that even possible? I would point out, it looks like that God is raising them up to be the answer to the solution for this great evil atrocity of abortion in America. This is just one of many things we can point to. It doesn't make sense statistically that they are so pro-life, more so than their parents or any other generations in Roe versus Wade, unless God is raising them up to use them to be a solution. And this is where it's interesting going back to the early awakenings, the first great awakening, for example. If you look at someone like the Reverend Samuel Cooper, who was uh, a guy in Massachusetts, and then while he was in Massachusetts, there was a young kid who traveled with him as he would go and speak and do these different things. The young kid that traveled with him was a young child, John Quincy Adams, who was mentored by the Reverend Samuel Cooper. John Quincy Adams is the guy that helped end slavery in America. Well, guess where he learned his biblical and moral positions? He was mentored by a pastor, and that pastor had no idea who this kid was or how special he was going to be at the time he was mentoring him. The same thing if you look at the Reverend Gilbert Tennant. The Reverend Gilbert Tennant mentored a young kid, and Gilbert Tennant was from New Jersey, Pennsylvania. He mentored a young kid who ended up being a signer of the Declaration, helped ratify the Constitution, served in the first three presidential administrations, Dr. Benjamin Rush. Gilbert Tennant had no idea who this young kid was or who he would be, but he turned out to be very impressive and he was shaped by the pastor that mentored him. The same thing, if you look at the Reverend Samuel Davies, he was known as the best pulpit orator speaker, the best speaker of any pastor back in that era. Well, there was a young kid who attended his church, who traveled with him and who wanted to learn to speak just like the Reverend Samuel Davies. That kid did learn to speak very, very well and effectively. His name was the Reverend Patrick, or excuse me, it was Patrick Henry, who was mentored by the Reverend Samuel Davies. Patrick Henry is the guy who gave the famous give me liberty or give me death speech. He was an incredible statesman and politician in American history. But all of these guys were mentored by pastors from the first great awakening. And the mentoring they got is what led them to be leaders in the American Revolution, leaders going forward, fighting against some of the immorals happening in America. And this is part of where we look at the millennials and Gen Z. And there's a lot of people frustrated with millennials and Gen Z, and sometimes for good reason. But the reality is that... Who knows, but that God has brought them for such a time as this. And the reality is they just need a little more help. They need some mentoring. But this is why we have to be transgenerational. We never know who we are pouring into or how God will use them to make a difference in the nation. Historically, some of the greatest leaders in our nation's history were mentored by their pastors when they were young. And their pastors had no idea who they were, what they were going to be. But that's what happened. So John Quincy Adams, just as an example right? He grew up in, in the beginning of the American Revolution. He's just a kid. When he's eight years old, his dad gives him a musket and tells him to go practice the musket drills with the Massachusetts Minutemen. When he's 11 years old, he gets to go with his dad over, uh, actually gets a congressional appointment to go with his dad over to Paris as they're negotiating the end of the war. Uh, when he's 14, he goes before the throne of Catherine the Great in Russia as the official interpreter. Uh, when he gets older, George Washington becomes president. George Washington chooses John Quincy Adams to be America's top diplomat. And Washington said that 
that John Quincy Adams was the best diplomat America ever had. Then John Quincy Adams' dad becomes president. He's diplomat under his dad. Then Thomas Jefferson becomes president and he becomes a U.S. senator under Thomas Jefferson. Then James Madison becomes president. He again is chosen America's top diplomat. He's actually the guy that negotiates the end of the War of 1812. Then you have James Monroe becomes president and John Quincy Adams is the Secretary of State. Then John Quincy Adams becomes the sixth president of the United States. After being president, he then goes and serves in Congress because John Quincy Adams says there's a great evil in America that needs to be remedied. It was the evil of slavery. So John Quincy Adams goes to fight against slavery as a congressman, becomes the leader of the anti-slavery movement, spends the next 17 years of his life fighting against slavery. He was given the nickname the Hellhound of Abolition. In the midst of him fighting against slavery, he's in Congress. So in Congress, every couple of years you have freshmen elected. And there was a freshman elected his very last term in Congress. In his last term, he actually has a stroke and dies. But he had been the leader of the anti-slavery movement. This young freshman had heard all the speeches he gave and, and, and actually joined the anti-slavery movement and became a kid mentored by John Quincy Adams. When John Quincy Adams dies, this young freshman congressman was actually chosen by Congress to be part of the committee that, that did the funeral arrangements and, and the procession for John Quincy Adams because he was that connected to John Quincy Adams. They wanted him to be a part of it. As it unfolds, John Quincy Adams dies. This freshman congressman decides to run for re-election. He runs for re-election. He got defeated. But not to be discouraged, he ran again. He got defeated. He then ran for Senate, got defeated. He then ran for state office, got defeated. This young freshman did not win another election until he became the president of the United States. The young freshman that John Quincy Adams mentored was Abraham Lincoln. Now, you talk about pouring into the next generation. John Quincy Adams had no idea who Abraham Lincoln was going to be or how important that was going to be. But he poured into and mentored and, and really the evils of slavery is what he taught Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln becomes president and says, we need to end slavery. You never know how God might use the people you are pouring into. And so our job is to pour into those people because Abraham Lincoln, he becomes the president and he's the one that, that signs, he does the Emancipation Proclamation. He signs the 13th Amendment. He's the one that ends slavery. That is everything John Quincy Adams wanted to do and never saw done. John Quincy Adams spent his entire life fighting against slavery and never saw it ended. But little did he know he mentored the guy that actually accomplished the, the burden God put on his heart, right? The very thing he wanted to do, he mentored the guy that helped do that. This is part of being transgenerational, right? Everything that we've prayed for, we might not see happen in our lifetime, but who knows, but that God might use us to train the very people that do that job. And the last thing I want to point to looking at revivals, again, I think we're in the middle of a revival, but know that all revivals require hard work. The reason I can point to that is because George Whitfield is the most famous evangelist from the first or second great awakening. Uh, but certainly the, he was a part of the first great awakening. And George Whitfield, I mentioned that he had preached 34 years, 18,000 sermons in America. And it's interesting that as he preached these sermons, especially early on, he had a lot of pastors opposing him. He had a lot of churches opposing him. He had a lot of battles he fought on a philosophical and theological level. It's interesting that he didn't have a lot of opposition from secular people. Almost all of his opposition came from the pastors, came from the church, the Christian community. And it would seem like these are the very people that should be on your side. But anytime you challenge the existing theological status quo, there's people that don't want to change. And there's people, even if you can show them what you're saying is biblical, they're like, no, we shouldn't be doing that. So his greatest opposition came from inside the church. And the opposition was so fierce. It's, it's kind of interesting. We sometimes will talk about how at times you need to wear a bulletproof vest. Well, the, the sad thing is sometimes the, you need to carry all the steel on your back because all the rounds are coming from the people that should be firing against the enemy. You're taking those rounds on your back. Well, that's true. Sometimes there are those oppositions and it's, there's kind of a funny analogy when, when you look, uh, by the way, the old adage, I don't need enemies. I have friends. Like that's kind of that idea. Like the people that should be with me, like, oh my gosh, they're the, the challenge right now. But I like the, I like the analogy. Um, if you look back to the Bible, when God calls Noah and tells him to build the ark, the Bible doesn't give us any indication that Noah was worried about the rain or the storm outside of the ark. But I kind of wonder how did Noah feel about the woodpeckers in the ark, right? Like, I'm not worried about this outside stuff, but if these woodpeckers would just leave the wood alone, this is sometimes the battle we face is it's not always, opposition doesn't always come from where we imagine. And certainly it's true in awakenings. 
that sometimes the biggest opposition is, is a theological position from people who are not accepting biblical truth and they don't want to stand for what is morally right. Well, that's what George Whitfield encountered and his opposition came from the religious community, but it didn't stop him. He, he, he kept going. And, and this is also the notion of when people say we shouldn't be doing it that way. And some people say, well, we've always done it that way. Well, you might have always done it the wrong way. And just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean you need to always keep doing it that way. And that's part of what the Bible even talks about the old and new wineskin, that, that we need to be new wineskins or else we're not going to be able to maintain the wine that God wants us to have. The church is often the last ones to make this correction. I say church is, as, as a big hole. Because you have awakenings where George Whitfield, where there are certain people who say, guys, we've missed it. Big picture on what the word of God says. This is what the word of God says. We need to stand up. And there's a lot of opposition from people who don't agree with that biblical theological position. And, and that's the challenge at times we will face. But again, we shouldn't be discouraged. Whitfield, 18,000 sermons in America, 34 years. I mentioned he had roughly seven missionary journeys. All of them were on horseback. He went from approximately the area we know is Maine to Georgia. He went back and forth on horseback seven times. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles he rode on horseback. He carried with him his own traveling pulpit. Uh, he was not invited to speak in almost any church in any town. And yet with that being said, almost 80% of all Americans physically heard him speak. And as he was doing it, he literally preached himself to death. He destroyed his lung and his 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 throat that as, as the end of his preaching career, he would have to stop in the middle of preaching at times because he was coughing so bad. He was coughing up blood and uh, like almost like coughing up his lungs is what kind of the description was given of it. At times he would finish a sermon, then go off and just cough and hack. And it was literally, he was talking himself to death, but he was so dedicated saying, this is what we need to do. I'm standing up. Whitfield died in the middle of trying to bring a revival to England, a revival to America. Well, he did. He just didn't know he did it arguably speaking, right? I mean, and toward the end of his life, there were more pastors getting on board because they finally realized like after 30 years of his preaching, like, oh, oh, I agree with you now. I mean, you didn't for the first 28 years, but now you do. That's awesome. Where were you 25 years ago, right? 30 years ago. But he did receive a little better treatment toward the end of his life. Nonetheless, he, he never knew the impact he ultimately had on America. And this is part of the thought. When you look back at someone like Whitfield, Revival is characterized not just by inspiration, but by much hard work. It's not that, man, I feel so great. I'm going to go do this. No, sometimes it's, man, this is hard. It's not easy, but it's the right thing to do. So I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to get the job done. And this is part of where when you look at, at the history of revivals and look at revivals in America, it requires hard work. And I believe we are in a revival right now. But what that also means for us is it's going to require a lot of hard work and it will be hard work for decades. Right. It, it won't be we work hard for a couple weekend services. We work hard for a month or two. We work hard and get some good people elected. Nope. It takes decades to change the community, to change the culture. But this is what revival does is we roll up our sleeves. We do the hard work. It takes a long time. It usually brings great internal conflict. Now, just think about that for a second. Right. Revivals are hard. They take a long time. They usually bring great internal conflict. That is what characterizes and define revival. So here's the question. Then do you want a revival? Because right. A lot of people think revival means it's going to be so fun and, and God, you know, is going to bring everybody together in harmony and unity. Nope, not historically. That's not what we see. But we still should answer, absolutely, we want a revival. We need an awakening inside of the church. And I totally believe and pray that you are seeing that where you are from your own church. But let's let's go through this. Okay, it's going to require to have a revival. It requires individual and local action. There's a willingness to disciple others, practical applications of the Bible, a process, not an event, transgenerational mentoring, and lots of hard work. But as we do those things, we can see a revival taking place, an awakening taking place. And again, it will happen first inside the church. This is not something that we're going to see all the lost get saved because arguably right now, some of our biggest battles are inside of the church. We need Christians to start living like Christians, right? We need pastors to start standing up with courage and boldness and, and speaking the word of God. This is how a revival starts. It starts inside the church. There's division, there's frustration, there's confusion. But if we will do these things, we can see a revival in America. Now, with that being said, that's kind of where I want to end. And so, Guy, uh, I will turn it back to you forever we want to go from here. Tim, wow. You know, um, just sitting here listening to all this, I, I know I'm going to go listen to this broadcast again for sure. Um, it, it's, you know, the, the, the great points that you make are points that we make here at Protector's Toolkit all the time uh, for the warriors out there is that 
uh, perspective is certainly important. We we perspective we have a perspective sometimes as church protectors in our own little uh, world that you know we don't need church safety and security. And maybe not us in the protector world, but the pastors. I hear this all the time from pastors. Well, you know, God's got us kind of uh, thought process and yep. we don't need church safety and security. So perspective is hugely important. And I, and I love how you put the revival out there. I, I do feel the same way you do that we are in the midst of a revival right now and. Uh, it's funny to think, you know, it's less tambourines and dancing. and It's, it's a lot more sweat equity that we're going to have to put in. Yes. And we are going to have to go and go to those people, like Christ said, to go do as part of the Great Commission. So just just wonderful, wonderful information, Tim. Um, how can what, what are you working on right now? What what new projects you have you guys have coming out? Uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes there at Wall Builders. Yeah, so, so wallbuilders.com is a great place for people to go to find out more of what we are doing. We, we have a, a daily radio program um, as Wall Builders Live. We're on 380 stations throughout the nation, but there's also a downloadable podcast you can get. Um, we're all over social media. So, so we're trying to provide a lot of content. And uh, even now on the screen, our, our new book, The American Story, where we even talk about some of the first and second great awakening, talk about some of the heroes. We are in the middle, you know, of a spiritual and cultural battle, arguably for the soul of America. Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, we've heard recently from some very high up elected officials about how there is a, a, a tarnish, a, a stain on the soul of America. And if that is true, which I would have a very different argument or definition than what was said, but if it's true, we know the, the only hope, right, is a redemption through the blood of Jesus, right? Like that, that is, that's the hope of a nation. And so part of what we're doing is try to bring back historical truth and accuracy. So stuff from, you know, like critical race theory or the 1619 project, there's a lot of oh, stuff gosh. being said that is historically not grounded on any level whatsoever. Right. But now people care. It, it, seemingly there's a lot of people that care more about how they feel than about what's actually true. Yeah. And one of the things that we see a lot, we do a lot of, of mentoring with young people and we see that a lot of young people, they're very passionate because they want to do something that, that makes a difference. They, they want to be part of something that makes a difference. And that's awesome. It's just they've been giving very, they've been given very bad information. So they're, they're drawing very bad conclusions. And therefore, they're part of sometimes very bad movements. And so part of what we've seen is, just like we mentioned, when there's tra transgenerational mentoring, when you're pouring into younger generations, we've discovered that most young people are actually open to conversations. And they're opening, they're open to being mentored. It's just, we have to spend time with them. And when they get good information, we've seen so many young people change their position because they got better information. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, I mean, right now you have superstar athletes that are tweeting out very inaccurate information about some very significant things happening in the nation. And, and most young people are just seeing what you know some of their heroes are tweeting or posting on Instagram and they're going, oh, this is what's true, that they're getting bad information. And so part of what we are trying to do is engage in the informational battle, which is having an impact on the spiritual, cultural, and, and soul of the nation. So that's a lot of what we're doing uh, on all kinds of levels. We're working legislatively um, right now in various states where uh, state legislators are trying to pass laws to restrict the overreach of their governor or secretaries of state, you know, changing election laws to try to help improve uh, where there was some thoughts of voter regularities, voter fraud, um, things to protect the unborn, the, the Second Amendment. So we're doing a lot of stuff throughout the nation, working with state legislators to try to uphold biblical principles and constitutional values at a time when both of those are under significant attack. Yeah, I'm going to make a call to action right now for all the warriors out here, whether you're watching this live right now or you're watching in a I want to go to builders.com. I want you to try to give that ministry. Uh, we give to that ministry. Uh, we we pour into that ministry uh, because it is such a vitally important ministry, not only for the preservation of our history and bringing out uh, uh, that history, but also in what is currently going on and making sure that facts facts rise to the surface more than feelings do. You know, facts don't really care about your feelings. You know, you hear that from Ben Shapiro and others like him. But that's absolutely true. When we give out factual information, when we get out, give out good information, then we are actually changing not only the hearts, but also the minds of people. And we're um, we're just growing and coalescing around that. So please head over to wallbuilders.com and make sure you're doing that. Also, the uh, the get the American story. Uh, I have that book. It's an amazing book. It's an awesome book. It's a great read. And also the the, the Bible, the Bible that you have, the, uh, the American Bible. Um, love that as well. It, it just gives great context uh, 
really for a warrior, for our, uh, an American citizen um, to put those two things together and see how we became a nation. You know, one of my yeah. greatest things is when I go to talk at the police academies to young officers and, and they don't seem to have Christian values and Christian beliefs, I help them understand, well, you're going to be enforcing Christianity because our laws come from Christianity. Our laws Absolutely. come from the Bible. Um, so the sooner you figure that out, brother, the sooner I'd love for you to come visit me at my church, you know. Uh, so we we just we absolutely love that. How Great. can wallbuilders.com, obviously, any other websites you want to give out to make sure people can contact you, um, Tim? Wallbuilders.com is the best place to go. Again, we're all over social media and other platforms, so they can find us really anywhere. But wallbuilders.com is the best place to go. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm going to close us out here. Thanks again, Tim. Uh, if you just hang around to the end, we'll, um, I'll you come bet. back and talk to you just in a second. So, hey, Warriors, uh, call to action here on Warrior Wisdom, our first one. Make sure you go over to wallbuilders.com. We give into that ministry, and I think that is a valuable resource that you should be giving in uh, to as well, especially if you enjoyed tonight's topic and you shared it with somebody. Make sure you're you're going and giving a little bit of, over there. Uh, make sure you subscribe to everything that we do on all of our social media platforms. Instagram, Facebook, Warrior for this over uh, everywhere out there. Don't forget to check out our podcast, Word and a Weapon, a little bit of the word that I give you, and then a weapon to take with you in your daily, everyday walk as a Christian warrior out there. And also, if you're looking for booking me for your uh, for your leadership conferences, your leadership at your corporation, or you're looking for some safety and security consulting or training for your employees at your business, GuyBeverage.com. GuyBeverage.com is the place to go do that. We're booking right now for all 2021 live and in-person classes. So make sure you go find us over there at GuyBeverage.com. Get all that information. Don't forget uh, what I say, Warriors, all the time is make sure your head is on a swivel and your situational awareness is high. Be blessed.